The Coram Deo Church community is a missional church rooted in historic, biblical Christianity and committed to cultural engagement. We hope the message you're about to hear spurs you to deeper reflection on the gospel of Jesus Christ. Thanks for listening. The text for this morning's message is John chapter 4, verses 1 through 42. Now, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria, so he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God, and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water, welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water, so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. And Jesus said to her, Go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. And Jesus said to her, You are right in saying you have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming, and is now here, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I, who speak to you, am he. Just then, his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman, but no one said, What do you seek? Or, Why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into the town and said to the people, 
Come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? So they went out of the town and were coming to him. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you don't know about. So the disciples said to one another, Has anyone brought him something to eat? Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his will. Do you not say there are yet four months, then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life, so that sower and reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored, and you have entered into their labor. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, It is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. The Word of God for the people of God. Well, good morning, friends. I'm glad to be with you this morning as we continue our journey through the Gospel of John. Uh, if you're newer to Quarmdale, I'd love to give you a copy of one of these little Gospel of John scripture journals. They just have the text of this book of the Bible, along with some space for notes. And so if you want to come see me after the service, I've got a few of those. I'd be happy to give you one. I'm going to actually preach out of mine this morning, so we'll see how that goes. I got a lot of stuff up here, and I'm going to have to keep it all organized. Um, here's what I can tell you that, that we just need to name, and that probably you have felt, even if we haven't named it, and that is, it's easy to feel like an outsider in a room like this. There are a couple of reasons for that. One, it's a bigger room. Right? So it's easy to sort of like slide in here and slide out and sort of feel anonymous because there's too many people in this room to have an intimate conversation with. It's not like showing up at somebody's house for dinner, right? This, this room is a bigger space. But it's also easy to feel like an outsider because honestly, if you look around the room, like look what you see, right? You're a bunch of attractive, well put together people. You're dressed well. You seem like you probably have life together a little bit. And so there's something inside every one of us that says, these people seem like they have stuff figured out. I'm, I'm probably the one in the room that's kind of a mess, right? Like if people really knew what's going on inside me, I'm not sure they'd want to relate to me. All of us have felt that way at some point, and some of us feel that in the church very particularly. And here's what I want to encourage you with this morning. This story in the Gospel of John is a story for outsiders, this story is a story that resonates with that feeling inside of us. What you're going to see in this morning's text is that the very first missionary in church history, one of the very first people in this gospel to respond favorably to Jesus, is an outsider. She's a woman. She's a Samaritan. 
Uh, she has none of the privilege and power and prestige that some people would have had. In this culture at this time, men and especially Jewish men had most of the power and influence. Here's a person who's a social outsider with no power, no privilege. And on top of that, one who is likely sexually broken, relationally wounded, and economically and socially marginalized. This story of the woman at the well in the Gospel of John is one of the most powerful stories in this gospel. And so in order to do it justice, let me give you a little bit of background to help you understand the encounter that we're seeing here. So let's dial the clock back from, from the Gospel of John, dial the clock back about a thousand years. If we go back to 1000 BC, we're in the, area, the era of King David and King Solomon, the high point of the life of Israel in the Old Testament. Solomon dies in 931 BC, and under his sons, there is civil war, there's a fight for power, and therefore the kingdom splits in two. And so what you have from 931 BC onward is two kingdoms, Israel in the north and Judah in the south. I brought a little map here so you can make sense of it. Israel is that yellow uh, territory to the north. Judah is the red territory to the south. So the, the kingdom is fragmented into two. And one of the problems with that is that Jerusalem, which is circled there in yellow, is in the south. Now, if you've read the Bible, you know Jerusalem is the city of Zion. This is the place where God is worshipped. It's the place where the temple is. It's the place where the king's throne is. It's the center of civic life for the people. So if you're a northern king after this civil war, what are you to do? Well, what you do is the politically expedient thing. You establish a new capital and you try your best to make it an alternative to Jerusalem. And that's exactly what happened under the reign of King Omri. We read about it in the book of 1 Kings. Here's what it says. In the 31st year of Asa, king of Judah, Omri began to reign over Israel. And he reigned for 12 years. Six years he reigned in Tirzah. He bought the hill of Samaria from Shemer for two talents of silver. And he fortified the hill and called the name of the city that he built Samaria. So he constructs this new city, this new capital called Samaria. And this becomes the capital city of the northern kingdom. Fast forward a few hundred years. Here's what happens. 2 Kings chapter 17. In the ninth year of Hosea, the king of Assyria captured Samaria. And he carried the Israelites away to Assyria and placed them in Hala and on the Habor, the river of Gozan, and in the cities of the Medes. So this Assyrian king comes, conquers Samaria, dispossesses the people, and takes them into captivity. Not only that, but later in the chapter, we read this. And the king of Assyria brought people from Babylon, Cuthah, Ava, Hamath, and Sepharvaim, and placed them in the cities of Samaria instead of the people of Israel. And they took possession of Samaria and lived in its cities. Notice, by the way, that now Samaria speaks more of a region than just of one city. So this Assyrian king dispossesses the people and sends other people to dwell in their cities. Now, over time, here's what's happened. So this all happens in about 722 BC. Between that time and the time of Jesus, the Israelites who were left in the land intermarried with these pagan people. And so what you ended up with was, was these people who were sort of half Israelite, but also half pagan. In fact, 2 Kings says this about their worship. So they feared the Lord, but also served their own gods after the manner of the nations from among whom they had been carried away. 
There's still some kind of worship of God, but it's mixed with these pagan worship rituals and the worship of other gods. And this is who the Samaritans were, ethnically and religiously. They were sort of half Jewish, but not entirely Jewish. They accepted the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, but not the rest of the Old Testament. They had built their own temple on Mount Gerizim to rival the temple in Jerusalem, and they had developed their own practices of worship. And this is why John the Apostle tells us here in chapter 4, Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Between these two people groups, there was cultural animosity, there was political animosity, there was religious animosity, and it was about 700 years old. So what you need to understand is that the story of the woman at the well is pressing up against issues of race and class and ethnicity and history. This tension between Jews and Samaritans is foregrounded throughout the story. And what that means is that as we read it, we must consider as well our own biases, our own ethnic and cultural assumptions. Who are the Samaritans in your world? What are the cultural assumptions you make? Throughout this story, here's here's what you're going to see. Where the world around us sees categories of ethnicity, gender, race, class, Jesus sees human beings. All the disciples can see in this story is the category of Samaritan woman. What Jesus sees is a human being made in the image of God. And every human being, no matter their social or cultural background, is thirsty in a way that this world just can't satisfy. Thirst and hunger are the primary metaphors operating in the chapter. And here's what we're going to see, four movements in the story. We're going to see the awakening of thirst, the root of thirst, the satisfaction of thirst, and the sharing of joy. The awakening of thirst, the root of thirst, the satisfaction of thirst, and the sharing of joy. So let's begin with the awakening of thirst. John chapter 4, verse 1. Now, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, which is important, don't you think? Because if you were baptized by Jesus, that's a pretty good trump card on everybody else, right? Hey, I was baptized. I mean, I know you got baptized by John, but I was baptized by Jesus. So when uh, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee, and he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. Now John is setting the stage for the story here, and there are three important things you need to notice. One, Jesus is in Samaria. Two, He's at a well. And three, it's the sixth hour, which is noon. All three of those features are going to be important to the story. And by the way, this well still exists and is still full of water to this day. You can go to Israel and go to exactly this town and this place. And in fact, this well that has been uh, full of water for thousands of years. Or verse seven, a woman from Samaria came to draw water. Again, notice three things are important. She's a woman, she's from Samaria, and she's coming to draw water at noon. 
That fact is significant, and here's why. Because in this culture and at this time, you came to draw water either in the morning or in the evening because that was the cool part of the day, and that's when people did tasks like this. The fact that she is coming to the well to draw water at noon tells you something important. What it tells you is that she is an outsider in her own community. She is not welcome among the women. There's probably a reason why she wants to avoid most people and not go to the well when they are there. There's a reason she's coming at noon. And Jesus engages her in conversation with this simple request, give me a drink. Verse 9, the Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans, John tells us. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. So notice that she, this, this happens to all of us in conversation, right? She has set up the terms of the conversation for Jesus, right? She has given him the categories. She sets up the conversation along the lines of gender and ethnicity. Hey, you're a Jewish man, I'm a Samaritan woman. Why are we having this conversation? Jesus, instead of having the conversation she wants to have, reframes the entire conversation. She wants to talk about Jew and Samaritan. He wants to talk about God and thirst. So notice, he doesn't even use the categories she gives him. Instead, he says, if you knew the gift of God, and who it is that's saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. There's an interesting strategy we need to learn here from Jesus, and that is that sometimes instead of using the categories handed to us by our culture, we're wise to use entirely different categories. The culture around us right now has certain patterns and categories it wants to have every conversation in, Right? Race, class, gender, ethnicity, these are big categories in our culture right now. But what if we learned, like Jesus, to ask a whole different set of questions? See, whatever your race or culture or gender, you're thirsty for something. It's a common thirst that unites us in our common humanity. And, and Jesus, while not ignoring the categories of Samaritan woman and Jewish man, just wants to go deeper. He wants to say, hey, before we identify ourselves that way, let's talk about what it means to be human. You're a human being, and here's what I know about you. It means there's a thirst you have. That's the conversation Jesus wants to have. So verse 11, the woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Which is So this is like one of those moments where you know something as the reader that the original characters in the story don't know. You know, yeah, Jesus is actually way bigger than Jacob. He's a way bigger deal in the Bible than Jacob. The woman doesn't know that. She's like, hey, are you, are you, are you greater than our father Jacob? So we know that, that, that she doesn't even realize the significance of the question she is asking. But, but here's what I think is happening. I think at this point in the story, the woman's beginning to feel sort of the tension rise in the conversation, right? She's an intelligent person. She sees that Jesus is talking about something deeper than just water and thirst. 
She's not exactly sure where he's going, but it's starting to get a little clear that we're having a deeper conversation here than I first thought. Now, when you're in a conversation and it starts to get this way, sometimes the thing you do to relieve the tension is just to try to lean into a place of common ground, right? To go back to something that we can just all agree on. Let me use, let me use a, a totally different kind of example to illustrate the point. As most of you are already aware, next Saturday, the Nebraska Cornhuskers travel to Norman to play Oklahoma for the first time since 2010. And I know you guys are feeling the tension already, right? It's gonna be a strange week for all of us. The last time these two teams met, it was 2010. It was the Big 12 Championship. It was Bo Pelini versus Bob Stoops. Both teams finished the season that year 10 and two. And shortly after that, you guys started firing coaches for winning nine games. Is it okay to say that? Can we talk about this here? It feels a little tense already. So let's say that you have a friend or a family member or a pastor who's rooting for the opposite team and the conversation starts to get a little tense, what, what can you do to ease the tension, just to sort of like make the moment not awkward? Well, you find a point of common ground, right? And we all know in the Nebraska and Oklahoma rivalry, what's the point of common ground? Well, we just go back to 1971, right? The game of the century. Hey, you guys remember that? 50 years ago, Nebraska was coming off a national championship. Oklahoma was ranked number two. It was an amazing game. Came down to three points at the very end. No matter who you were rooting for, everyone agrees that was one of the best games in college football history. So we can go back in time to that historical moment as a way of sort of relieving the tension that's going to be present a week from now. Well, that's what the Samaritan woman is doing here in a different way, right? She's going back to Jacob. There's a point of common ground here, whether you're a Jew or Samaritan, you know who you revere? The forefathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so she goes back to the origin of this well, back in the story to a place that she and Jesus both share as a common ancestor, and she moves the conversation back to common ground. Hey, let's talk about Jacob. This is the well that he gave us. But again, Jesus is interested in a different conversation. Verse 13, Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Jacob's well, Jesus says, was only a foretaste of better water yet to come. Your thirst can't be quenched by Jacob's well. You need living water. Now, it's unclear how fully she's tracking with where Jesus is going, but at the very least, her thirst is awakened. And she says in verse 15, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty. Here's the question the narrative asks. Are you thirsty yet? Are you aware of your thirst? Has your thirst been awakened? Have you tried drinking from all the wells that our culture says will satisfy and fulfill you? And do you find yourself unsatisfied and unfulfilled? So if you're not thirsty yet, you might not be ready to hear what Jesus has to say next. But if your thirst is awakened, Jesus then wants to help you see the root of your thirst. And that's where the conversation goes 
Now, verse 16, Jesus said to her, go, call your husband and come here. Now, this statement seems to come out of nowhere, doesn't it? There's nothing in the narrative that would prepare us for this question. But as John has already told us in chapter 2, Jesus knows what is in man. Jesus knows every human being all the way down to the core. And what he's doing is he's putting his finger on the very place where he knows her thirst has led her to try to find fulfillment. Verse 17, the woman answered him, I have no husband. You've been in this moment in a conversation, haven't you? You know what she's experiencing right now. It's the moment when that new person in the small group asks, so how many kids do you have? Not realizing that you're walking through the pain of infertility. It's the moment when that old friend asks, hey, how many years has it been now since your wedding? Not realizing that the divorce is still fresh. It's that moment at the high school reunion when someone says, hey, have you run into Joe lately? Not realizing that Joe was your abuser. In moments like that, you know what we all do. You realize someone's just touched a painful place in your story and they don't realize what they've done. And so the quickest way out of that is just to say something vague and keep the conversation moving forward. That just gets us out of this moment, right? And so that's essentially what she does. I have no husband. It's a true statement. She's not lying. She's just trying to move the conversation forward. But Jesus knows the deeper truth underneath this. Jesus said to her, you are right in saying, I have no husband, for you've had five husbands, and the one you have now is not your husband. What you have said is true. Now, what is Jesus doing here? This Samaritan woman is carrying with her a suitcase full of relational brokenness and sexual brokenness, and Jesus opens that suitcase and brings it all out into the light. He names exactly how many men she has had relationship with. Why? I want you to notice two important things. Notice, first of all, this is a private conversation, not a public one. It's just the two of them talking. So he's not outing her to the world. He's asking her to reckon with her own story. Second, notice that this is connected to the conversation they've already had about thirst. So Jesus is not jumping into a whole different category here and talking about something different. He's drawing a connection for her between her thirst and where she's likely trying to quench that thirst. I want you to notice how deeply humanizing this whole encounter is. This woman, who we can presume has been objectified and mistreated by at least half a dozen men, is dignified and honored by the Lord Jesus Christ. He speaks to her as a social equal. He deals tenderly with her pain and brokenness. In a culture where he would have been judged merely for having a conversation with her, he is not concerned at all about his own reputation. He is engaged in the moment in a conversation with her, honoring her. She's probably never met a man who's genuinely interested in her as a person. A man who's not out to get something from her. A man who treats her with kindness and respect and honor. That's who Jesus Christ is in this moment. And don't miss this little wrinkle in the text that might just pass you by. 
He's the seventh man. Seven is the biblical number of completion, perfection, wholeness. There are seven days in creation. Six days you shall work and do all your labor, but the seventh is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. She's been with six men. Now she's in the presence of a seventh who's totally unlike the other six and who has the potential to complete and make whole all the brokenness in her story. What she's been looking for in men will be found in the Son of Man in a way she can't possibly fathom. Verse 19, the woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. Here's the point in the conversation where Jesus gets to the root of thirst. It's about worship, you see. Why has this woman had five husbands and now a sixth? Well, because she's a worshiper. She's looking for something. She's chasing something. She's made something in her life, ultimate, other than God. When Jesus says in verse 22, you worship what you do not know, what he's saying is there's a worshiping impulse inside of you, even if you don't understand what you're doing. You're a worshiper. There's no way you cannot be a worshiper. You're going to make something ultimate. You're going to let something have supreme value in your life. You can worship God or you can worship a hundred thousand other things, but you can't not worship. Something is going to be ultimate in your life. We don't know what it is in this woman's life that is ultimate. We don't know what it is. We don't have a whole lot of background for what's the narrative of her relational journey. But what Jesus is pointing to is, hey, this is about Worship. And here's the amazing thing. Jesus says in verse 23, the Father is seeking people to worship him. The whole reason Jesus is here in this moment talking to this woman is because the Father is seeking worshipers. God has sent Jesus on a rescue mission to take us from worshiping what we don't know and bring us into, turn us into people who worship the Father in spirit and in truth. That's why he's having this conversation with this woman, and it's the same thing he's doing even here this morning. The Father is seeking people to worship him in spirit and truth. And that brings us to the third point then, the satisfaction of thirst. Verse 25, the woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. She sort of says, I'm not sure what to do with all of this you're telling me, but here's what I know. Messiah is coming in. When he shows up, he's going to make sense of all this. Now, what's interesting about this category is, remember, the Samaritans only believe in the books of Moses, the first five books of the Bible. And so where for Jewish people, the, the word Messiah had very Davidic overtones. It was very connected to God's covenant with David. For the Samaritan people, the word Messiah had much more Abrahamic and Mosaic overtones. 
When she says Messiah, she means a prophet like Moses, the one that Moses said in Deuteronomy would come to reveal God to us. He's going to come and he'll tell us all things. He'll help us make sense of life. He's going to make sense of reality for us. And then Jesus makes this amazing statement. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. I'm the one you've been waiting for. I'm the fulfillment of all God's promises. I'm the Messiah for Jews, for Samaritans, for the whole world. Don't miss this wonderful little clue that John gives us in verse 28. So the woman left her water jar and went away into town. Her thirst, you see, has been satisfied. She's found better water she didn't know she was looking for. And now her original errand to go fetch some water has been superseded by a new one. She goes and tells the people, come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town and were coming to him. So her thirst has been satisfied and now she's telling others and saying, you, you have to come meet this person who just told me everything I ever did. Notice, she has not taken an evangelism class. She doesn't have a degree in theology. She doesn't know how to answer the top 10 objections to the Bible and Christianity. She's been a Christian for about five minutes. And what's she doing? She's telling her friends, hey, you got to come meet this Jesus. Friends, just as Jesus offers himself as living water to this woman, so he offers himself as living water to you and to me. Everyone who is thirsty is invited to come to Jesus and drink and be satisfied. So we've seen the awakening of thirst, the root of thirst, the satisfaction of thirst, but that's not all. Let's finally see the sharing of joy. Jump down to verse 39 and, and notice this is John's conclusion to the chapter. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him. Because of the woman's testimony, he told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days, and many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. This is not just a story about an individual woman. This is a story about an entire town. We have a tendency to read through an individualistic lens. And so we love seeing how Jesus engages with this Samaritan woman. But notice the story doesn't stop there. The story is about this entire town full of people encountering Jesus, first through the woman's testimony and then through his own word and teaching. The joy she found, she went and shared with others. But notice the Samaritan woman is not the only person sharing her joy. Jesus wants to share his joy as well. Look at verse 31. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, Has anyone brought him something to eat? And Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Now, I've heard this verse taught 
in the past in a way that's sort of like this, sort of like Jesus saying, hey, who has time for eating when there's kingdom work to be done? Right, which leads to a weird kind of dichotomy as though enjoying a meal is a worldly diversion that keeps us from the real work that's more important. That's not what's going on here. Here's what's going on. Jesus is so full of joy that he's not thinking about food. Have you ever been so full of joy that you forgot to eat? Or so full of excitement and anticipation that you forgot to eat, that you didn't even realize you were hungry, like your, your hunger just didn't even register on the scale. You've probably had a moment like this in your life. In 1996, I had my very first job out of college working uh, on the Thune for Congress campaign in South Dakota. So some of you know my uncle is now a U.S. senator, but back then he was a no-name nobody running in his very first election. And by a miracle, he won the primary election. And so he was up for the general election on November 5th of 1996. And on that day, he would either win or lose election to the U.S. Congress. And we had spent months and months and months working hard, campaigning. And I remember that Tuesday of the general election, I didn't eat anything the whole day because I was just filled with anticipation and excitement. I just wasn't hungry, it didn't even register. The plan was he was gonna spend the day in Rapid City and then fly to Sioux Falls after the polls closed to deliver either a victory speech or a concession speech, depending on how things went. And as the election returns started to come in and it started to look more and more like he was gonna win, the campaign manager looked at me and said, Bob, go to the airport and get the congressman. And as I was driving to the airport, I realized I haven't eaten anything all day. And even right now, I'm just not even hungry. Like, I can't even think about food. I'm so full of anticipation and joy. There's so much excitement and weightiness in this moment. It's such an, a crazy thing. I haven't even thought about food all day. And that was just a dumb political election that has nothing to do with the eternal state of the souls of human beings. Jesus is watching in real time the fulfillment of God's promises to Abraham. A whole Samaritan village is coming to faith in the Messiah. Jesus is full of joy and he's sharing that joy with his disciples who, like us, are too dense to see what's going on. They're like, hey, Jesus, you want some grub? Man, we ate at a good burger joint just now. We brought you some leftovers. You should eat some. Meanwhile, he's saying, guys, open your eyes. The kingdom is coming right now. The harvest is happening right here. This is what it's all about. This is the whole deal right here happening right in front of your eyes. The fields are white for harvest. That's the same joy, friends, that Jesus is inviting us into. This story is inviting us into the joy of the Samaritan woman in finding the true satisfaction to our thirst. The joy of finding real, living water that actually satisfies all the way down deep. And it's inviting us into the joy of Jesus in sharing that life-transforming grace with, every, with everyone and anyone who will listen. We get the joy of encountering it in the first place, and we get the joy of inviting others to encounter it. So let me ask you to think about just your little block that you live on, your street or your apartment complex, 
the place where you work or the school where you attend, the place where you spend your days and your time. And think about, what do you see there? Do you see fields ready for harvest? Do you see individual human beings made in the image of God who are thirsty for something and who need to know the life-giving joy of relationship with Jesus Christ? Do you see people who perhaps right now are caught up in all kinds of other narratives and other stories and looking in other places for the fulfillment they don't even know they want? Do you have eyes to see the harvest? It's hard to miss in this story, and it's not the only time we'll see it in the Gospel of John. The fact that the example that we are to follow, the person we are to emulate, the person who comes out of the story with commendation from Jesus is not the disciples, but the Samaritan woman. The one who at the beginning of the story we would have assumed doesn't have it figured out, is not an insider, but is an outsider, doesn't even understand the questions Jesus is asking, probably doesn't even know the longings that she's trying to fulfill. She's the one who's the model. And meanwhile, the disciples as we'll see again and again, get it, but don't get it. They're there, but they're missing the most important thing. John wants you and I, empowered and changed by the grace of God in Christ, to be like this woman who goes and tells her whole village, hey, you got to meet this Jesus. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for Jesus' ability to see things we don't see and to call our attention to things that we so easily miss. Thank you for the grace that you showed to this woman and to many of her friends who lived in this town. Thank you for the recording of this story by your Holy Spirit through the Apostle John to challenge us with the question of what we're thirsty for whether we've known and found the joy that is ours in Christ, and whether we now are sharing that joy with those around us. Come and meet us. Come and fill us up in all the places where we're thirsty and we feel our lack. Come and fill us with renewed joy to be your ambassadors and your messengers and to see the people around us in light of the real thirst that every human being has for meaning and wholeness and fulfillment in life. Make us ambassadors of that life, we pray, for our good and for your glory. Amen.